All right. So I met what I said in the description. I really am happy to open this up to whatever people want to uh, want to talk about, uh, you know, politics, philosophy, uh, you know, the uh, the new season of Rick and Morty, uh, whatever, uh, whatever's on your mind. Uh, probably not that last one. But uh, in any case, I do want to at least start out by talking about some G.A. Cohen and analytic Marxism stuff, because that's what's on my mind, because I have been working on a essay about that topic um, for an anthology that uh, my friend Conrad Hamilton is editing. That's going to be called Flowers for Marx, which is basically about um, sort of different strands of the Marxist tradition and, you know, looking back at the past and, you know, and looking ahead to the future. And uh, so mine is about analytic Marxism in general and the work of Gerald Allen Cohen, Gia Cohen, Jerry Cohen in particular. And so, you know, to help me, you know, I mean, it's sort of double dip here because it helps me kind of get some thoughts organized about it for the essay. I thought I'd at least start out by talking about it today. And then again, we're going to start this way. People want to call in, talk about whatever you want to. I am more than happy to uh, to let the subject drift around. But uh, let's start with, uh, with Cohen and analytic Marxism. Uh, so the way I think of analytic Marxism, and by the way, uh, when Cohen talks about it, it's always analytical Marxism with an A-L at the end. Uh, but um, since I'm used to saying like analytic philosophy, uh, which is closely associated with analytic Marxism in my mind, uh, I always just, whenever I write anything about it, I always just leave off the A-L and say analytic Marxism and put in a little footnote uh, saying that I'm leaving out the A-L in deference to the uh, American usage. Uh, but in any case... Um, so the way I would think about this is just the deployment of the sort of typical, um, argumentative tools and conceptual methods of analytic philosophy for Marxist and socialist ends. And the reason I say Marxist and socialist is to open it up a little bit, because when we say Marxism, we're mostly talking about a theory of history and a theory of how capitalism works and a theory of how capitalism could be overcome in the future. Uh, and so that's one thing, of course, you could do with, with analytic Marxism is to try to, to sort of inject some analytical clarity into the theory of all that stuff that I just said. Um, but another thing, you know, but I also, but I say Marxist and socialist ends because I also mean, Things like thinking thinking hard about socialist values and trying to be consistent about that, um, you know, and arguing against various sorts of moral and other kinds of you know critiques of socialism, for example. Um, so I want to cast a really broad net there. Now I should say that this definition is both narrower and broader than the one that Cohen himself uh, generally prefers. So if you read the uh, the 2000 edition of Cohen's kind of masterpiece, which is a big, thick book called Karl Marx's Theory of History, a defense in the introduction to the 2000 edition, uh, he gives this 
definition that's both sort of broader in one way and narrower in a different way than um, the definition that I just gave you. So the way that it's um, that it's broader than the definition that I just gave you is that rather than specifically talking in the way I did about analytic philosophy, which is certainly what uh, Cohen himself, you know, was up to, right? I mean, certainly Cohen's own work, you know, fits well into the definition that I just gave, if anything does. Uh, but uh, he's, you know, he wanted to include the contributions of non-philosophical members of the sort of circle that he was in, what was called the September groups. That also includes people like the economist John Romer and the sociologist Eric Olin Wright. So in that introduction to the 2000 edition of Marx's Theory of History, um, instead of talking specifically about analytic philosophy, he talks more generally about, quote, intellectual techniques developed within several currents of non-Marxist Western and mainly Anglophone uh, social science and philosophy. So that's a nice broad net, but I use the term a little bit more narrowly because um, at least for the most of my purposes, I'm not really interested in like whether John Romer is right, that there's some kind of interest in the synthesis to be had between Marxism and neoclassical economics. Uh, I'm really interested very specifically in um, the use of the stuff that I know best, which is analytic philosophy. Uh, for Marxist and socialist ends. Um, and so that's the sense in which my definition is narrower than Cohen's, but there's also a sense in which my definition is broader, or at least, let's say, more ecumenical than Cohen's definition. Since if you read that 2000 introduction to Karl Marx's theory of history, he also specifically says that one of the defining things about analytical Marxism is thinking that there's no special dialectical methodology that's, you know, that's uh, that's different from just sort of any normal methodology for figuring out your theories. And I don't necessarily think that um, I'd, I'd remain a little bit more agnostic about this. So, um, you know, what I, you know, what I say in my first book, get them an argument. Uh, if you read the chapter, there's a chapter there called uh, A is A, um, Ayn Rand, Leon Trotsky, and What Logic Isn't. And in there, I argue that, okay, dialectical methodology isn't like an alternative to standard logic, that those aren't two competing theories of the same thing. They're theories of different things. Uh, when, like, Hegel or Marx or Engels talks about, you know, contradictions, you know, for some of what Hegel says, this isn't 100% clear, but certainly with Marx and Engels, they don't mean logical contradictions. What they mean is like, you know, points of tension within complex realities or something like that. Um, so, you know, points of creative tension, like the obvious example would be like the contradiction between workers and capitalists. Um, you know, point of tension from which, you know, further changes to the system could arise. Uh, which is just a completely unrelated thing to what contradiction means in logic, which is like um, two statements that can't both be true. They contradict each other. Uh, but I still do say in there that if you read like Trotsky's essay, uh, The ABCs of Materialist Dialectics, that this is at least something like what he means, at least by dialectical methodology, even though he's confused about it, he sort of... Um, 
says a lot of things that indicate that he thinks it does somehow contradict standard logic. But, you know, if you ignore those parts, what Trotsky seems to mean by it, at least, I think probably a lot of Marxists have meant by it, is it's like some a kind of collection of very reasonable advice for um, <coughs> for how to um, for how to look at particular kinds of systems, particularly social systems, historical change, and all of that stuff, um, in a way where you're attentive to the sort of messiness, you're attentive to the fact that everything's in the process of change and transition, you're attentive to these points of tension that they would call contradictions in this other sense. And I think that's all actually really solid advice, right? So, I mean, I think I'm probably much friendlier to something like dialectical methodology than than Cohen is. Although I don't necessarily think you need to sort of use the Hegel inflected language in order to follow that advice. Um, but in any case, so that's one sense in which I think uh, probably um, Cohen is a lot less ecumenical than I am. And certainly, you know, in his more polemical moments, including that introduction, um, he'll actually use phrases like uh, analytical Marxism. He'll define analytical Marxism as like non-bullshit Marxism, <laughs> uh, which is certainly not something that I would say, uh, because even if, you know, this is the wording I use in the paper, even if uh, my own philosophical interests incline me more towards looking for insights in places like Rawls's theory of justice for normative questions about socialist values, or debates about the role of functional explanations of the philosophy of science for thinking about empirical questions um, about how to make sense of historical materialism. I'm more interested in looking in places like that than by, you know, padding for whatever gold there is to be found in, like, I don't know, Lacanian psychology, uh, to pick an example at random. That doesn't mean that I think that Marxists who are interested in Lacanian psychology aren't necessarily purveyors of bullshit, right? They're just, they just have a different research program and they're trying to, they're trying to figure things out in a different way, but you know, I'm willing to listen with an open mind to, uh, to what they have to say. Right. So, uh, that out of the way, um, one way of, uh, of thinking about this. So there's a, a famous thing where, uh, they, um, the late, um, great, uh, 20th century analytic philosopher uh, W.V.O. Willard Van Orman Quine, W.V.O. Quine, um, has this famous phrase about degrees of um, of modal uh, commitment. In other, you know, in other words, like how seriously people take talk about possibility and necessity, and um, and so with kind of apologies, and you know, Graham Priest, who's a um, who's a uh, living philosopher who writes about philosophy of logic and he writes specifically about something called paraconsistent logic. And so he has this paper where he sort of takes the Quine terminology, talks about degrees of paraconsistent commitment, depending on how you're thinking about paraconsistent logic and how it plugs into your general views. So I talk in the, in the essay about different degrees of analytic Marxist commitment, uh, which is just kind of my way of talking about the things about analytic Marxism that in my experience tend to irritate a certain kind of very orthodox old school Marxist. So 
and you ask, okay, what do I mean by old school Marxist? I just mean, I think very orthodox is fine. Just like the kind of Marxist who's maybe a little bit suspicious about analytic philosophy, who's more likely to read Hegel than Quine, um, who is likely to be jumpy about anything that seems like a departure from sort of classical Marxist ideas. Um, there's like a certain kind of person that I'm describing who's pretty down on analytic or analytical Marxism. And so, you know, I talk about in the essay about different sorts of analytical Marxist um, ideas you could have that as you go sort of up the ladder are, are likely to be more and more irritated to this kind of Marxist. So at the first rung of the ladder, uh, and I'm using G.A. Cohen's own work as as my as the sort of um, case study for all this, because Cohen himself did more to contribute to all of these ideas than just about anybody else. So at the first rung of the ladder, you've got Cohen's insistence that Marx's insights um, about history and economics and all that stuff can, and for the sake of clarity, should be detached from the. Uh, Hegel-influenced language that Marx often used to express those ideas. Um, and the second one, right, the second uh, degree of analytic Marxist commitment, right, the second rug of the ladder is Cohen's willingness to jettison aspects of Marx's empirical analysis that are in tension with the results of more recent social sciences. In other words, just saying, look, we're not too... Uh, married to the idea that Marx got everything right in 1867, if you're talking about economics, or 1859, if you're talking about its theory of history, you know, we could be pretty willing to, you know, to just say, okay, well, here's a wrong assumption given the last 150 years of research or whatever, and toss that out, see what remains, see how you could hook up what, what's left, you know, without that piece, or if you can, you have to go back to the drawing board, all that stuff. So that's the second rung. And then a third degree of modal commitment, the third rung of this ladder, is Cohen's interest in the normative dimensions of socialist thought. When I say the normative dimensions of socialist thought, I just mean like Cohen's interest in um, the underlying values that inspire the socialist project, equality, community, all that stuff, um, which, you know, some socialists you know, if they come from a certain sort of very orthodox Marxist background, will deny even caring about normative values at all. Um, we'll say, no, 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 all I'm interested in is historical inevitability or something. And, um, and you know, Cohen doesn't take that very seriously. And, and he, he, you know, he's very strongly committed to the idea that, no, like Karl Marx, for example, was would be an example of a socialist who obviously was very, very committed to certain kinds of ideals about freedom and equality and all that stuff. And obviously that's motivated his uh, commitment to the socialist project. Okay, so I've given you three degrees so far. Remember, number one was the insistence that Marx's insights can, can and should, for the sake of being clarified, be detached from the Hegelish language uh, with which they're sometimes expressed. Uh, two is Cohen's willingness to jettison aspects of Marx's empirical analysis that are intentional with the results of more recent social science. And three is Cohen's interest in the normative dimension of socialist thought. So in my experience, those Marxists who are most inclined to dislike analytic Marxism 
are more likely to be irritated by two than by one, and they're more likely to be irritated by three than they are by two. Hence the my borrowing the quine phrase and talking about the four degrees of uh, analytic Marxist commitment. So at the first degree, you just have to be willing to see some value in applying analytic precision to the many suggestive and seemingly quite insightful, but not always fully clarified claims that are made in the writings of Marx, Engels, and later Marxists. What does that mean? It means like disambiguating possible readings of key terms, choosing a reading and defending it against different ways you could, somebody could object to it, and so on. So Cohen's book that I've already mentioned uh, several times, Karl Marx's Theory of History, mostly consists of that kind of thing. So that's the first degree. Uh, I saw Matt Brunick, for example, who, by the way, is going to be a guest on uh, the main show on YouTube, give them an argument, tomorrow night. Uh, looking forward to that. Going to talk about what a socialist society might look like. Um, but, um, you know, so I saw Matt Brunick, for example, say, look, as long as that's all that analytic Marxists are doing, I think that's a useful thing to do. And I think he's more suspicious of some of the other stuff having to do with moral philosophy and et cetera, right? But we're not going to get there yet because right now, we're just talking about the first rung, right? The first degree of analytic Marxist commitment, which is just thinking that it's useful to apply this sort of analytic philosophy-ish clarity and rigor to uh, figure out what Marx is saying and, and come up with a sort of defensible version of some of these theories. So the second degree of Marx's, analytic Marxist commitment is just a matter of saying that, look, once you've applied that high level of precision to understanding what Marx thinks, you'll sometimes realize that he got some stuff wrong. At the very least, you'll quite often realize that clusters of concepts that intuitively go together don't logically entail one another. I'm going to talk about an example of that in just a minute, but um, it doesn't seem to me that this second degree should be a particularly heavy, you know, should be a heavier psychological lift, lift even for very, very committed Marxists than the first degree. But I've witnessed enough capital V, very capital O, orthodox, capital M Marxists reacting, for example, to the argument I'm about to give you, uh, the way a vampire uh, might react to the sight of the sun rising over the mountains, to know that as a matter of fact, it is a heavier lift. Okay, so the argument I've already teased a couple times is one that uh, Cohen gives a version of in uh, his paper, The uh, Labor Theory of Value and the Concept of Exploitation, uh, an updated version of it in an article I wrote for Jacobin, a long article for Jacobin called Karl Marx Was Right, Workers Are Systemically Exploited Under Capitalism. And it goes like, so Karl Marx in Capital... Um, starts from the assumption of, even though he doesn't use this phrase himself, what many later people have called a labor theory of value. And I know there are people who say, no, 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 Marx doesn't have a theory of value at all. Actually, if you read it in just the right esoteric way. Look, I have not read uh, the Heinrich book yet. I'm, I guess I'm open to it, but I, I have been you know, recently rereading Capital, and I really don't see how you could argue that. Marx clearly has a theory of value. Um, but, you know, in the sense that Marx thinks that, you know, value, meaning like exchange value, um, the thing that underlies price, 
right? So price, of course, as Marx knows very well, he spends lots of time on this in Capital, you know, jumps around and oscillates because of supply and demand, you know, competitive pressure and all kinds of things. Uh, but Marx assumes, and this is not an original assumption to him, uh, there were earlier non-socialist economists who assumed some version of the same thing, like David Ricardo uh, definitely has a labor theory of value that and a lot of what Marx says in the early chapters of Capital seems to be just sort of slightly sharpened up Ricardo, um, that underlying the the way that price moves around, there's this there's the underlying thing that's measured by price, which is value, and that and value is understood by Marx as or maybe as being created by some of his language is a little ambiguous between those, but let's just say value is average socially necessary labor time, right? So the value embodied in a product or the value embodied in a wage packet is the um, the average socially necessary labor time that it takes to manufacture that product or um, that uh, that it takes to to you know to reproduce the workers so they can keep manufacturing stuff in the case of uh, the wage packet, and um, many many economists since then, and I'm not just talking about people who are ideologically opposed to Marxism, even many economists who are like committed socialists who are politically very sympathetic to Marxism. Um, don't really buy this assumption. Like I said, this is not original to Marx. Uh, this is conceptual uh, architecture that Marx was taking over from earlier non-socialist economic theorists. Uh, but uh, there are various reasons why, in terms of the way that economics has changed since 1867, which is when the first volume of Capital comes out, which is the only one, by the way, that Marx actually finished, the others were left incomplete when he died and, you know, Eagle added some stuff to them and heavily edited them and then uh, published them. But um, that economics has changed a lot since then. And there are certain arguments that Marx is very fond of that he uses in a few places that a lot of people whose knowledge of economics only comes from reading capital are very impressed by uh, that. um basically says, well, um, you know, supply and demand can't completely explain prices because what happens when supply and demand are, you know, in, equally, in a state of equilibrium, basically, uh, what, what accounts for the prices there? There has to be some underlying, you know, value that, that's explained by that. And for various reasons, Marx thinks the, again, following the lead of these earlier economists, that the best candidate for what that thing is, is... Um, is labor time again average socially necessary labor time in the abstract if you read the first three chapters of capital you'll hear all about why marx includes all of those qualifications um uh, but um but that argument that i just i just sort of sketched out or gestured at is one that a lot of people who are academically trained economists, even if they, again, might be very sympathetic to uh, to, to Marxism as a political project, um, are unmoved by because that sort of makes sense. If you, you know, my understanding, there's an essay by an, an economist 
who is a Marxist, uh, although not a super orthodox one, who I have a lot of respect for. In fact, I'm co-writing a book with him and Bhaskar Sankara. Uh, Mike Beggs, who if you uh, if you read this essay, it's called Zombie Marx. Uh, it's available on Jacobin. It was published a long time ago, but it's not paywalled or anything. You know, he kind of says in there, well, this argument sounds very impressive. If you think of supply and demand as these kind of forces that are operating on a price, uh, but if uh, you think of if you think in terms of supply and demand schedules the way that a contemporary economist would, it's not that impressive. And basically, the idea that there's this underlying thing that's like the value that uh, price is some sort of weird, distorted reflection of. Uh, and again, it's controversial whether that's what Marx is even saying. Although I will say it seems pretty clear to me if you're in Capital that that is at least part of what he said. Uh, but that assumption is one that, like lots of economy, you know, academically trained economists almost all uh, reject now. That you know they basically seem to think that, like, given the way that people think about economics now, it's just sort of a, a like simpler and, and more explanatory to to not sort of postulate that extra thing. That's my best understanding. Now, there are still economists who defend it. I don't have a dog in this fight particularly i'm not an economist and don't pretend to be um and um i i don't assert that it's wrong but i think there are good reasons to at least worry about whether the labor theory of value is wrong uh and this is where the point earlier about how well oftentimes clusters of concepts that intuitively seem to go together actually come apart um logically so in this case, right, the, a concept that seems to be very tightly clustered together with labor theory value is the charge that workers are systemically exploited under capitalism. Um, that, in other words, part of the value that they're creating is 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 taken away from them in terms into the form of the capitalist profits, and numerous libertarians, in particular, and conservatives and smug centrist liberals will say, aha, modern economists, right, contemporary economists don't believe in this labor theory of value, so therefore the idea that workers are the ones who are creating value and therefore that workers are exploited under capitalism, that's all just wrong. And Cohen says, and I, I kind of try to give a better version of his argument in the Jacobin article, but I think the core of his point is correct. Cohen says, well, hold up, guys, that's, that's way too quick. That um, this, whether or not the labor theory of value is true, the way that Cohen puts it is in that essay is, look, the labor theory of things that have value is just kind of a tautology, right? And there's no denying that, right? That the, that like anything that actually has like the, like, you know, regardless of where the value of products comes from. Uh, the it would still be true that the products themselves, to the extent that they didn't just appear naturally, right? To the extent that you know humans are involved, are a result of workers' labor. That's just true, right? No denying that. Um, and so the real question is, well, okay, so do the workers? Um, is it exploitative? In uh, you know, I mean, like there's certainly. The stuff that workers are creating have has value, 
and workers don't get to control all of that value. Some of that value is extracted from them by the capitalist class in the form of profits. Uh, now, of course, as Marx himself explicitly says in many, you know, several places at least in Capital and most famously in, in the critique of the Gotha program, um, that doesn't mean that even in a ideal socialist society that workers would be getting back everything that they create in consumption because after all some you know some of it needs to go to uh you know the uh repairing old factory equipment and building new factories some of it needs to go towards common needs like schools and hospitals and basically some equivalent of a welfare state even if you're imagining a totally moneyless marketless advanced communist utopia hopefully or sorry i would hope that uh that there would be something equivalent to a welfare state that there would be, as Marx points out, for example, some sort of upkeep for people who can't work because they're too disabled, for example. Um, so, okay. But the difference between that and, you know, the reason that not every single bit of what workers create going back to the consumption isn't automatically exploitation is that what Marx really means by exploitation, if you read, like, um, if you read Capital... Uh, he's he's very clear on this, and, and you know at least exploitation in the broad sense, whether under capitalism or in any other form of class society, is the Marx's analysis of what's going on there is look uh, the immediate producers in any given society, whether that's modern you know workers under modern capitalism or serfs or peasants under feudalism or slaves under slavery, the immediate producers, sure they spend some of their day creating the equivalent of what their of their means of subsistence whether that means their wages and their under capitalism or even a slave like the sort of food and shelter and all that right that costs something and you know so part of the cotton that the slave is producing is the equivalent to what they're getting back but um there's also uh there's also some uh there's also some of the day in which the immediate producers in any class society are creating stuff that they don't get back. That's, and again, the key point, the thing that makes that very morally charged term exploitation appropriate to describe this process is that it's not under their control, right? It's not that they're like democratically voting to give some of that to other purposes rather than keeping it for their own consumption. They just don't get a choice in the matter. It's, it's taken from them by, uh, by force, essentially, uh, by you know the uh, the structural power of the ruling class means they're just extracted it without uh, without say so of the immediate producers. And if anything, as Cohen points out, if you um, if you're just focused on, on the labor theory of value, but on the labor theory of the stuff that has value, uh, then um, then the analogy with, with between what happens under capitalism and the one and what happens under feudalism that Marx emphasizes in Capital is actually even stronger, right? Because it's like the serf who, you know, I don't know, the, under different versions of serfdom, you might be working the Lord's fields for a certain number of weeks a year and your own fields for a certain number of weeks a year. But there are other versions of serfdom where you might be just working one field, but then you have to give up a certain amount of your crops once they're harvested to the Lord's men. And it's the equivalent that the the worker is, you know, working all day making stuff and uh, and they get back the equivalent of some of what they're making in their wages, but the rest of it has to go to the capitalist. And so the real question 
about whether this is exploitation is, well, is this truly voluntary the way a capitalist apologist would say it is, or is there a strong and important sense in which the worker is forced to enter into this arrangement where they have to agree to give up uh, some of uh, some of this stuff? Okay, so this is the this is the argument that I said a certain kind of uh, very orthodox Marxist uh, refer you know reacts to it the way that Dracula might react to a beautiful sunrise. Um, so that's the second degree. I see I've got a call, but let me just do the third degree uh, before I take the call. So at the third degree of analytic Marxist commitment, um, you and you know I would say real quick on the second degree that. You know, I would gently remind such Marxists that Marx himself frequently revised views in light of new considerations or new evidence. Uh, he spent an awful lot of time wearing down a seat in the reading room of the British Museum precisely because he felt the need to keep track of the most current social scientific research and incorporate it into his understanding of how capitalism works and how it might be overcome. Uh, he also held quite a bit of his writing back from publication during his lifetime because he wasn't satisfied with the solutions he'd come up with to key, to key conceptual problems. So, you know, for example, you could look at Capital Volumes 2 and 3, much of which is spent trying to figure out this transformation problem, how, you know, prices get so far away from value. Um, and... Um, and you know, and, and if he'd been more satisfied with that answer, at least earlier, you know, he, he would have uh, he would have published those in his lifetime. I mean, he had actually written those before Capital Volume One was published. So there's something a little funny and also a bit sad about some contemporary socialists um, insisting that the result of all this intellectual labor conducted in a way that was thoroughly informed by Marx's knowledge of his own fallibility and the limits of his analysis should be treated as a sacred text. Right. Did Marx get everything right and solve economics in 1867? There, I think there are some reasons to doubt it, not least the fact that Marx himself would have rejected the idea with contempt. Um, he didn't claim to have a direct line to God. He was an atheist. Um, so that second one can, can spark a lot of irritation among certain very orthodox Marxists, but as far as I can tell, Cohen and analytical Marxism's very orthodox Marxist detractors feel the most irritation and indeed sometimes real contempt for um, Cohen in particular, maybe analytic Marxism in general, at the third degree of analytic Marxist commitment, where you take seriously the idea that Marx and pretty much every socialist uh, ever has been motivated by normative impulses, ideas about how the world should be. And indeed, Marx and pretty much every other socialist express pretty clear normative judgments. Um, you know, thinking that some things are, you know, some social structures are morally objectionable, uh, for example, and tried to apply so that at that third degree, you recognize these facts, right, and say, look, they had underlying values. We all have underlying values. Let's use the techniques of um, analytic moral philosophy, of, of reasoning about morality to sort of investigate those underlying values and try to bring them into some kind of con internal consistent framework. Now, my own position to put my cards on the table is pretty thoroughly analytic Marxism committed at all three of these degrees. I suspect, however, that at least some Marxist resistance to third degree analytical Marxism and through a chain of guilt by association, uh, some Marxist resistance to analytic Marxism in general comes from a highly legitimate suspicion of a fourth degree of analytic Marxist commitment that can be quite easily mistaken for the third degree. 
So at this fourth degree, normative questions are not just adds to the answer, but lend extra importance through the implicit and explicit adoption of um, empirical assumptions that inflate the role of culture and ideology and individual commitment in the process of historical change to a point that's just not compatible with even a fairly loose understanding of historical materialism. And just to make all this a little bit spicier, right, since so far I have been, uh, I've been praising uh, Gia Cohen, um, I will say that I think Cohen himself in some of his later work, not all of it, right, but at least some of the, um, the normative work that he was produced in the last years of his life really did slip from the third to the fourth degree. In fact, you know, he definitely did. Uh, if you read even some of those extra chapters at you know, the end of the 2000 edition of Karl Marx's Theory of History, for example, or you know, even if you, you know, read like the introduction to uh, self-ownership, freedom, and equality, I think it's, uh, I think it's fairly clear that he, he was slipping into the fourth one. Uh, so what I want to do in this essay is I want to say, look, first, second, and third, yeah, absolutely. You should be an analytic Marxist in all of those senses that uh, Cohen's own work sort of exemplifies so well. But in some of his later work, he's he's sort of slipping into this view that um, when he talks about all the stuff about how having like inculcated people in a socialist ethos as a necessary condition for having to function in socialist society, um, for example... I think he's I think he's slipping into a very unhelpfully unmaterialist understanding of of historical change, which is ironic because some of his own best work was defense of Marx's theory of history. But uh, what I ultimately want to argue in the essay is that you can do one through three without four, and you should. Okay, uh, I've been talking for a long time. I'm gonna take. Uh, I'm going to take uh, Thomas and Ethan's calls uh, before I knock off for tonight. Let's start with Thomas. Hi, Ben. Hey, how you doing? Doing well. How are you? I'm pretty good. What's what's on your mind? Uh, well, thanks for doing this. Um, I The labor theory of value is something I'm sort of still wrestling with, don't have mm-hmm. a, um, necessarily a great conception of it, but I was wondering if I could read you an excerpt from this article on the labor theory of value that I think has a different take on it and sort yep, of get yep. your thoughts. Yep. Cool. Um, okay, here we go. Uh, like all great thinkers, Marx ends up being saddled with responsibility for the very category that he is taking under critical consideration. So he is mistaken to be an advocate, whereas in fact he is a critic regarding the so-called labor theory of value. Marx doesn't have a labor theory of value, but he's rather a critic of it. And not merely a critic, rather he is mounting a critique of it, i.e. how labor as value might point beyond itself. Is this, it, is this, is this Heinrich? Uh, no, no, this isn't. Okay. I've actually never read any Heinrich. Okay. I'd be curious to. Yeah. Um, an analogy would be Friedrich Nietzsche. If you ask most people about Nietzsche as a philosopher, they would say he's a nihilist whereas actually what he was doing was not advocating nihilism, but trying to diagnose nihilism as a symptom, specifically one that needed a self-overcoming, uh, a self-fulfillment and self-negation. I think that turn of phrase from Nietzsche, was, which both is and is not in the tradition of German idealism, 
that Marx is in is helpful for thinking about Marx's approach to labor as value. He looks forward to the self-overcoming of labor as value. So with respect to this, we're talking about not a positive theory of labor as value, but a critical theory of labor as value, and specifically labor as value in crisis and capitalism for Marx. Uh, in other words, there's a crisis of labor as value in, in capitalism, which Marx regards as a symptom of a possible and necessary change. And here's the other little part. Um, what I'd like to offer is that, in fact, the bourgeois social relations are not essentially private property in the means of production by the capitalists, but the value of labor, in other words, wage labor as a social relation. That's what's holding back the industrial forces of production for Marx. Again, this is the distinction between production for the sake of production, in which case, for instance, for, some, for someone like Adam Smith, labor as value is a means to the end. If you want to maximize production for the sake of production, you can use labor as value to mediate a society effectively to emancipate production. What Smith could not have foreseen, but which is Marx's concern, is what happens with the Industrial Revolution when labor as value ceases to be an adequate means for emancipating production and thus ceases to be adequate to the task of freeing production in the unlimited way he calls for here. In that respect, the issue is how labor as value has itself generated and continues to generate these industrial forces of production, in other words, continues to generate a crisis, a situation pointing beyond itself, how labor in its own activity in society points beyond itself and points beyond the bourgeois conception of humanity as homo faber or, and homo economicus. Uh, that's it. Uh, so I just want to get your, your thoughts on, on that. So, so one thing that I've noticed that's really interested is uh, if you say like, oh, I don't believe the labor theory value or something like that, which for the record, I, I have not actually said, right? I've said that I don't know uh, what the right, you know, I don't know who's right in that empirical debate, but I think there are at least reasons to worry that the labor theory value might not be correct. You get, if you say anything along those lines, uh, you get two very different sort of very uh, angry and very self-assured responses from uh, different kinds of people who think of themselves as very orthodox Marxists. On the one hand, you get people who say, um, if you don't believe in the labor theory of value, you're like an enemy of socialism, basically. And then on the other hand, you get people who say things like roughly that quote that you just read, right? That they, that like, no, you fool, Marx doesn't have a labor theory of value. And somehow those two groups of people, uh, at least in what I always say, I'd like Marx's Twitter, never seem to fight with each other. They only ever seem to fight with people who say, who think that Marx had a labor theory of value and, and which might be mistaken. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot going on in that quote, and I don't know that I would disagree with all of it, but I I think that the claim that Marx doesn't have uh, is is an enemy of labor theory of value, uh, I, I think is hard to square with at least the textual surface of capital that he he really seems to right like he really seems to um spend quite a bit of time in like um chapter one and you know particular arguing for uh you know what the idea that value is abstract socially necessary uh labor time um and 
usually when he's like criticizing the concepts of the you know bourgeois political economist, he's very explicit about this, right? So in the capital class that I've been teaching, uh, we my students and I just got to chapter nineteen where he you know he uh, he's very uh, he's very like harsh about the bourgeois economists for saying for talking about the value of labor rather than the value of labor power and the price of labor when they really should be talking about the price of labor power, right? That the, what the, um, they should be saying, you know, what the, um, uh, that what the capitalist is buying is hours of the workers' labor power rather than that they're buying the labor that the workers doing in that hour. And in fact, he says that one of the reasons it doesn't make sense to, to do that is to say that they're buying the labor itself is because, the money that they would be using to buy it is itself just an instantiation of value and that labor is the substance of value. Uh, like he says all this super explicitly in the text. So I know that there are smart people who have this kind of view that that quote seems to reflect, but just as a matter of, of Mark's interpretation, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm super confused about how that works. Like I would just, I mean, I guess I would just have to sit down with like one of these guys' books or essays and like kind of see line by line how they explain away these passages. But like, it really seems like Marx accepts the labor theory of value. Now, if you want to say, well, Marx, you know, look, capital is in a textbook about how prices work, right? That's not Marx's primary, you know, um, you know, about how prices would work in a state of equilibrium, right? That's not Marx's primary interest, right? His primary interest in sort of digging down beneath the sort of market transactions and prices and all that stuff to think about uh, the underlying social relations of domination um, and uh, class under that, then yeah, I totally agree with that, right? But I don't, you know, it, it sure seems to me like he has a, you know, like, I am open to the idea that there's some way of reading the labor theory of value that makes it true, right? Some people I have, like, a ton of respect for think that. Uh, Lillian Sicaricia, for example, who's one of my favorite, um, you know, continental-ish uh, philosophers um, working today, one of the co-hosts of the What's Left of Philosophy podcast. She came in to talk to my capital class, and she said, while, while she agrees that... Um, you don't need to accept the labor theory of value to make sense of the idea of capitalist exploitation. She actually thinks reading Anwar Sheikh has convinced her that there is some at least minimal version of that theory that's actually true. Maybe that's right, right? I don't know, right? But I, I think that the it does seem... Um, so I, I don't necessarily have a take on that, but I, I, have, a, I have a much harder time, again, just given the, the sort of plain text... You know, I mean, maybe I'll get around to reading some of the, the writings of these guys that, you know, uh, the person you're quoting and, and Heinrich and whoever else. And that'll eventually convince me that there is like a plausible reading of it where Marx isn't saying what he seems to be saying when he seems to be endorsing the idea that value is abstract, socially necessary labor time. But I will say that that would be really tricky because he he really seems to be saying that. I don't know. Do you have a whatever, like a kind of concluded thought about that? Uh, not really. It's still something I'm working my my way through, and like I appreciate your response. I also see like you've got a bunch of callers, so I'd, I'd rather just pass the time around. Okay, no problem. But, but thank you. All right, Ethan. Ah, uh, hello. Hello. 
So I um, am listening to um, what you said. I think it's interesting um, and useful to try to explicitly note um, what really are the sort of distinctive commitments of analytical Marxists. And I agree almost entirely with your account, which is that, you know, analytical Marxists are going to say that, like, broadly speaking, Marx got things right, or was in like the right direction, at least, but that, you know, we should couple sort of classic Marxist concerns and commitments with more modern analytical methods and jettison those parts of Marxist theories that don't withhold uh, or that don't withstand scrutiny. Um, I think that one other sort of tendency that I think is somewhat distinctive of analytical Marxists, um, which is closely linked to what you mentioned about the sort of normative component of analytical Mm -hmm. Marxism, is um, I think that you don't get it, you don't get it as much in Cohen, although you kind of get it in like why not socialism, but you definitely get it in like Romer and you get it in like Eric Wright, which is um, I think that a lot of analytical Marxists were specifically concerned with um, certainly um, more so than a lot of the sort of orthodox Marxists that you've mentioned, um, like sort of building a vision for uh, or like a model for what socialism was supposed mm-hmm. to look like. Like Eric Wright and John Romer both wrote like entire books about, you know, once we gain political power, this is what a viable vision for socialism might look to, might look like. And obviously that's something which is frowned upon by a lot of traditional Marxists. Or uh, there is a, there is a, um, I mean, beyond just the fact that some of these guys do that, uh, there is also a, uh, point of connection uh, between, you know, between the two, at least in Cohen's work, uh, because if you read um, a the um, uh, if you're an egalitarian, how come you're so rich? Which uh, there's like a week that I was carrying around that book, and I was and I would my my standing line all week was that I was uh, uh, my my goal in life is to get to the point where that question is a good way to own me, but. Um, in any case, the uh, uh, you know my, ta- my take on it, by the way, is that the part of the book from which the title just derived is the part I find least convincing, sure. but like the first like two thirds of it is great. But um, in any case, in uh, in that book, I think he has he has this really interesting argument that um, that the sort of resistance to uh, what Marx called writing recipes for the cookshops of the future and this like famous kind of throwaway remark and what are the, the uh, what are the introductions to one of the editions of capital um, is a result of, of the sort of this kind of conceptual inheritance from, um, from Hegel and, and later German idealist and, you know, beginning with, I guess, Feuerbach also materialist philosophers that like has this view according to which, uh, you know, the solutions to problems are always sort of dialectically present within the problem itself and all of that. And, you know, and I think that that's, um, you know, so I, I think that there may be, I think maybe thinking about that, there's like a, there's a more, there's like a, an interesting connective thread to be drawn between like the sort of thing about analytic Marxism that makes it analytic and the fact that like several people, like big figures in that tradition were interested in like, 
actually writing recipes for the cook shops of the future. Right. Yeah, for sure. Like I was, I was uh, think about um, the um, the first uh, um, the first you know ba- essentially at least the first time I met uh, Bhaskar Sankara, we were both um, uh, guests in person on the Michael Brooks show, and uh, and I remember there was I think I don't remember how it came up, but there was some point in the post game, you know, I think he'd been drinking, whatever, where Bhaskar said like. You know, he talked about how people think it's like super profound and cool that like just before the Russian Revolution, Lenin had been rereading Hegel's Science of Logic, and he was like, "Yeah, he he shouldn't have done that. Right? <laughs> he, sh- he should have been spending that time reading about like economics or military strategy or something that would actually help him, you know, build this new Soviet state." Yeah, uh, you know, just a thought. Uh, well. Thank you for uh, for for the call, Ethan. Everybody should check out. Uh, it's 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 back to just being called Mouthy Infidel, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, for the time being, All I'm right. thinking of changing it. My my working title is the name of my website currently, which is Confronting Capital. Um, I like so, that. I like yeah. that. I'd, I'd I'd feel less silly saying it. So you know, it's got that going for it. That's one consideration. Uh, I, uh, I I should also say that. Um, that Ethan, I think, has or is producing uh, video essays about co-ed and um, and as is, is somebody who who seems to uh, to read everything, I read a little bit, uh, but uh, but I think Ethan reads everything, so those are probably a good source to go to. But want to keep this uh, want to keep this moving. Uh, Silver, what's on your mind? Hey, so. Um... I know, I know you were kind of expressing some ambivalence towards the labor theory of value, what you're yep. saying. Yep. When, when you're dealing with uh, libertarians who got their economics degree from Twitter University, uh-huh. using how often and useful the phrase, um, you're mistaking value for price, becomes useful. Yeah, I think that's right. So I, I, I think that like there are, I mean, one way of thinking about the, the point I was trying to make silver is that if you think about the guys you're talking about, right? And and I should say we shouldn't let the sort of fancier libertarians off the hook. There's a, um, uh, there is uh, a, uh, there's an essay. Let me see if I can find it now because this this drove me crazy when I first read this a few years ago. Uh, there's a, uh, there's like a libertarian, um, think tank, the foundation for economics education, um, which published, I think this is back in 2019. They published this essay, uh, called we're still haunted by the labor theory of value Copernican revolution economics. Okay. It's long, it's longer ago than I thought it was 2015. I think 2019 is just when I ran into it by, uh, this guy, Stephen Horowitz, um, and uh, who I checked, uh, and the about the author thing says Stephen Horowitz was the distinguished uh, professor of free enterprise. <laughs> I like that distinguished professor of free enterprise. Um, I you know could be the distinguished professor of socialist revolution somewhere, but anyway, the distinguished professor of free enterprise, the Department of Economics at Ball State University, where he was also the director of the Institute for the Study of Political Economy. He's the author of Austrian Economics and Introduction. So this is not some Twitter rando. This is a dude who should know better. 
And um, in this essay, he basically says, aha, silly socialists, they believe in labor theory of value. But now we, um, after the marginalist revolution in economics, we actually understand that price is all about supply and demand. And therefore, this idea that workers are exploited under capitalism is nonsense. And we should all, I don't know, worship at the altar of Hayek and von Mises. And, and I think that there are like, I, th- I think what you're saying and what I'm saying like actually go together because I think these are two very consistent with each other sort of layers of like refuting a guy like Horowitz, never mind any of these Twitter people, which is like, okay, on the one hand, you don't know what the labor theory of value is clearly like, cause if you aren't making those distinctions that value between value and price, um, and if you don't understand that we're not talking about the amount of labor that the individual puts in, uh, but the uh, but the average socially necessary labor that it takes to produce something, if you don't understand that those distinctions, you're telling me you haven't even read the first chapter of Capital. You haven't even read the first few pages of the first chapter of Capital because Marx makes all those distinctions there. So I, I totally agree with your point. In fact, I say this in the Jacobin article I wrote about this, that... Um, the labor theory of value is a lot harder to refute than a lot of barstool kind of libertarians think it is. And that's just true, right? Because Marx makes all these distinctions that these guys just don't know about. And I think you're completely correct about that, Silver. But uh, but then the second point that I want to make is, look, let's say for the sake of argument that they're right, that if they actually bothered to find out what the labor theory of value was, that they would still have a good case against it. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. I don't have a I'm, – I'm agnostic on the labor theory of value. But let's just assume for the sake of argument that these guys are right, the labor theory of value is incorrect. Okay, it would still be the case that the immediate producers, in the case of capitalism, that would be the wage workers, um, that they uh, that they produce stuff over the course of their working day, that some of it is equivalent to what they're getting you know, back in wages. Um and uh, and that the but like there's also a lot of extra time that they're working and uh, and they don't have a choice in the matter that they're forced by economic necessity right the uh, dull compulsion or whatever the phrase is of uh, economic necessity to work those extra hours to uh, to you know to produce stuff with value that's going to be extracted by the ruling class that would still all be totally true right so I think that it's like I agree with you that those guys are wrong even about what the labor theory of value is, but I also think that even if they're right about the labor theory of value, they're still wrong about exploitation, and that's a point that's worth making, especially if you're worried that maybe you know labor theory of value isn't true. Again, I'm somewhat agnostic about that. Okay, Jonathan. Hey, can you hear me? Yep, what's on your mind? Okay, you can think about wages like buying someone's time, or you can think of it as renting a person. Right. But it would be, it's it's better to me to, to think about it as you, the employee, are renting a livelihood from your employer. And this is how you can square it with Ricardo, J.P. Proudhon, and Henry George. In an environment in which the main method by, of wealth dissemination in a society is 
the trading of one's time for money, then the power at the negotiation or the wage negotiation is in the hand of the employer. Because he's basically, you know, yeah, you can think of that during the enclosures, it was the commodification of labor, but think about it as not the employees, the commodity, the job is a commodity. It's any, the, what you pay your employer is the surplus value of your labor. So it's just one more layer of rent extraction, but it's kind of the, so I'm giving a nod to Marx, but it's also kind of the wrong one to focus on, the wrong layer to focus on. It's like, say a guy walks into a bar and that, that's say the guy owns the bar. And so he's a rent extractor from his employees. He's also a rent extractor from the customers because he might be selling commodities that he sort of bottlenecks and monopolizes. And so he's renting access to like bottleneck commodities. <clears throat> but that's not the end of the line because the barkeep pays rent to the hotel in which the bar lay. The hotel owner pays rent to the landlord for the land on which the hotel lay. The landlord pays uh, rent, another form of rent called interest to the bank for the loan that he had to take out to buy the land. And all parties involved pay another form of rent called devaluation to whoever issues the exclusive unit of account. And they all pay another form of rent, all parties involved, to the government called tax. These are rent, it's all rent, everything is rent. Interest is rent, taxes are rent, rent is rent, and monopoly pricing power is rent. So if you look at it through the lens of rent extraction, which is about ownership, like ownership of the means of production, that yeah, you're renting access to those things. But to me, this is all like not as complicated as you're making it sound. It sounds sort of complicated, but it's really, if you just look at it through this lens, if you look at David Ricardo's law of rents, then really the dude at the top who's in that first layer of it, he's not, he's getting screwed by all these other people in turn. Because when David Ricardo does the thing about the guy who invents a plow or something, well, he just, the landlord just takes it out of his ass, you know? And that happens to capitalists too. Capitalists are getting squeezed out by prices, by the price of butter, the price of eggs, like fucking tripled last year. It was crazy. But the, the people who don't produce anything, that's not capital, that's wealth. And since you're talking, you brought over this in the context of analytic philosophy, well, a lot of philosophy takes the form of what is X. Like ethics is what is good or what is evil. Epistemology is what is knowledge or knowing or knowable. Ontology is like what is is, what is being, what is existence. Well, this whole thing can be looked at like what is capital. And of course, everybody who writes a book on political economy has a little bit different opinion. But of course they do. I mean, why would you write a whole book if you thought somebody else nailed it? But what is capital? So like horribly simplified, let's just talk about what the neoliberal does, which is to not distinguish wealth from capital at all. They just think wealth equals sign capital. But if I inherit a farm, which is really just a piece of land on which a farm used to exist, that's wealth. But what makes it capital is when the noun becomes a verb, when I'm farming something, goat cheese or soybeans or horses or whatever. Because then I'm producing a commodity that will compete for customers, which will lower the price of commodity. Presumably I'll need help and I'll be competing for labor, which will raise wages. That's the tr transition from wealth into capital. 
and framing things as anti-capitalism all the time sort of distracts, I think, from that it's the it's the wealth proprietors that are doing the damage right now. It's the people who are extracting rent from the capitalist that are keeping everything from production. And we don't have a surplus recycling mechanism in this country. No one does. So we just recycle it in Wall Street and the asset bubble blows up. But it's, I don't know. Does that make any sense? Uh, some, I mean, you, you covered a lot of, uh, you covered a lot of territory there and, um, I'm, I'm trying to think about which kind of threads of that, that I can sort of most usefully, um, you know, say something about or that I actually have anything to, uh, to, to say about, um, right now, I think that maybe what I would just, I would just stick with is, is this, right. That if, um, well, Okay, I guess I guess maybe two things, right? Because because there's like there's a sort of maybe a, a descriptive question and a normative question there, right? So the descriptive question there is like how much of the the cause of um, you know of what ails us under capitalism or whatever you want to call it, you know, the uh, the current economic arrangement um, is uh, is about. Um, is about production relationships and 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 how much of it is 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 sort of about um you know land and monopoly rents and other things it's about um, ownership relationships if we took sure but 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 I, but, but I think you could just just rephrase the distinction just made in terms of uh ownership relations say like how much of how much of the problem is about the specific form of ownership relations that has to do with um with the workplace, with you know, with with the uh, the production process in the broadest sense of, uh, of of production, and how much of it maybe is about other kinds of ownership relations. So that's one question, and then uh, the other question is uh, is sort of normatively like, okay, is like anti-capitalism, you know, the right thing to focus on? If we had, if we sort of sorted out the some of these other normative, you know, some of these other um, ownership relations, would it then be the case that capitalists um, you know, wouldn't have such a competitive advantage, and so they'd have to they'd have to pay workers more, etc. And uh, and it, you know, I think at least it's a little bit hard to evaluate the uh, the hypothetical. But I will say that I am very skeptical about the idea that um, that you know just having the power of exit, right? Which is like essentially what we're talking about. We talk about better competitive conditions that like. The two kinds of power that people can have in a system are uh, voice and exit, right? So voice is like you have a say, like you have some sort of control uh, over uh, over what happens in that system, and then exit is that you can you can leave it, right? That you have uh, or you can leave the part of it, or whatever. You can exercise some sort of indirect control by the fact that people know that you could always walk if you're if you're unhappy and i will say i'm a little bit skeptical of the idea that um that under better competitive conditions just just exit alone could sort of um could could substitute for real democracy at the uh, at the workplace uh which is uh, so you know i i think if nothing else that you know, I mean, there are actually there's an article Mike Beggs, who I mentioned earlier, has an article coming out in Catalyst about this exact point, right? Whether sort of workplace democracy actually needs to be 
part of our vision of a better society or not, or whether just sort of like the power of exit under better, you know, competitive conditions that were more favorable to workers would be good enough. And he comes down on the side of saying, you know, you do need workplace democracy, but um, given the sort of sheer size of that, uh, I see you got back in the queue, but, you know, given the sort of sheer size of the range of issues raised, I think that clarification is probably what I've got in me for tonight. So let's go to Kale. Oh, no, we lost Kale. Uh, we, uh, gone. I got back in. <laughs> no, yeah, I don't know what happened to Kale. Okay, now we've got we've got Kale, but but quick but quick comment quick comment from Jonathan before we go to Kale. You want to get an exit in place? You got to create commons, public housing, public public universal basic services, not not income but services, and then you can have people exit so they don't have the monopoly pricing power doesn't have power over them. The landlord doesn't have power over them. You, they can exit the system because the base cost of living is not as oppressive because it's lower. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly all for the provisioning of those um, of those services. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I mean, I, I've certainly, you know, you certainly don't have to convince me to 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 support those services. I think the I think the question we might have disagreements on is about the sort of how important it is, even under those better conditions, to uh, to have sort of direct empowerment in the workplace, and how central that question is our evaluation of society as it exists right now but last but definitely not least last caller of the evening um let's uh let's take the man the myth the legend kale brooks hey what's up ben how you doing good how are you good um i saw this late tonight so i missed a lot of what was going on um but it sounds uh sounds very involved Uh, a lot of a lot of labor theory of value stuff i i hope you guys have uh, crack that one finally um it'd be a lot of help um but uh and you guys should read on where shake because shake is like the best he, he has the best like he or like the person with probably the greatest understanding of political economy probably since marx but regardless um uh so i'm calling actually um about ga cohen um because i me and a couple friends uh have been reading capital volume three uh, on our Sundays, it's uh-huh. a wonderful Sunday afternoon every Sunday. Uh, well, that's, yeah, Sunday afternoon is when I teach by volume one. Yeah, um, well, volume three, if you're not familiar, is um, a bit of a mess, and so it's uh, it's work to to try to get through some of this. We just finished the section on credit um, and interest bearing capital, but I, I'm bringing that up because. Um, one of the things that, like, I think apparent, just becoming more familiar with Marxist, Marxist writing, um, not Marx himself, but Marxists, um, the fact that it's, I think, fairly apparent that very few Marxists have ever actually even picked up Volume 3 and have spent very little time trying to understand the arguments within it. Um, and part of that has to do um, with the fact that there are several chapters in there that are very uh, focused on history, on um, trying to explain uh, pre-capitalist uh, origins of, of uh, basically profit-seeking uh, social actors throughout history. Um, so you could say capitalists before capitalism, um, dealing with merchants, dealing with um, uh, users uh, who become uh, basically 
bankers later on. Um, what's interesting, bringing this to Cohen, because um, we were, t- while discussing one of these chapters, one of the more historical chapters, um, is the fact that there's kind of a, an odd fact about, uh, or odd aspect within kind of Marxian canon that it doesn't seem like anyone's ever actually systematically tried to understand what Marx's actual understanding of history is, not his theory of historical materialism, which is what Cohen's doing, uh-huh. but actually walking through and saying, well, what did, what did Marx say about this aspect of history of this uh, transition point of how this changed into this? And on the one hand, Marx isn't a historian and the book Capital is not a history of capitalism. It's a uh-huh. book about the social relation of capital and how it's kind of morphing into a mode of production at, in, you know, in front of his eyes. But um, it, it's, there's this kind of funny, awkward thing where uh, G.A. Cohen in his book, the, which ostensibly is the Karl Marx theory of history, uh, doesn't ever really spend any time actually trying to assess what Marx actually wrote about with regard to history, that it's this kind of, and I love the book. I'm not, not trying to be a hater here, even though I kind of, I ultimately am a Brennerite and disagree with Cohen's argument, but that's besides the point. It's a fucking awesome book. Um, but it, there's this funny thing of just like this, like kind of taking the, the preface to the uh, contribution of political economy and trying to say, well, does this argument make sense as an argument? Does like, what is, what is, what would be the argument? What would be the theory if you could actually uh, flush it out? Um, and, but then there's no attempt at all really to actually look at, well, what, how does Marx actually describe changes within history? How does, uh, or, you know, and besides the fact of just kind of secondary empirical research um, and uh and again, I think Cohen's doing something specific, but uh, we were saying, like, actually, we kind of would need, I think, um, for, you know, the sake of kind of uh, understanding kind of the Marxian research project, an actual theory of, uh, or like a theory of Karl Marx's understanding of history of, of like, what did he actually write over the course of all of his mature work? Uh, and I, you know, I would love that book to exist. I would love uh, to read that book. I also think uh, I feel bad for whoever ends up doing that project because you'll never get those years back. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, just something throwing it out there for any uh, Marxologists who want to, like, make a positive contribution. I actually think that would be a very interesting undertaking. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, you know, in in the book, Karl Marx's Theory of History, um, you know, like he'll, Cohen will only bring up sort of, you know, Marx's specific claims about specific historical events as like illustration, right? You know, illustrations of of um, of the sort of general theory of how historical change works, or uh, or as a uh, uh, or or like to like sort of say, oh. You know, here's an interpretation of Marx's theory of historical change, but then like, look at how that's you know, or here's you know, or here's an interpretation of like Marx on some point that comes up in the course of talking about that, but that's wrong because like, you know, here's what Marx says about the you know the 18th premier of Louis Napoleon about you know the French peasantry or whatever, and here's how it doesn't fit with that. So so yeah, just sort of try to comprehensively be like, 
I don't know. I mean, what would the I mean, what would the book be though, right? Like, what's the elevator pitch? Would it just be like sort of here's a compendium of like you know of a like here's like just a summary of like all the stuff that Mark says everywhere about history, or like what what would be the what would be the sort of uh, through line of the book? Um, not far from that. I mean, I think just to preface, I mean, I can try to give the actual pitch, but just to preface, I mean, there's kind of an awkwardness uh, among kind of Marxian research insofar as it's, you know, the people have actually tried to uh, like do, you know, in-depth kind of, whether it be theoretical or analytic, just kind of clarification and um, exposition of like, well, what actually is Marx's theory of X, Y, Z? Um, you know, the quality is always like a tenth of what it would be for any other kind of like major thinker in history, because um, most major thinkers are fit, you know, fairly comfortable within academia where you have people who are paid to, to just kind of do that extremely boring, nerdy work. Whereas like the actual only people who like actually take Mark seriously are people who don't have the time and resources to do that and hopefully usually are involved in politics. So there's kind of awkward contradiction, if you will, um, that uh, the actual kind of like work of trying to figure out, well, what what is Marx's theory of, of X, Y, Z, of any of these things is, is somewhat underdeveloped. Um, I think, you know, I, again, as I started off this call, like I'm very partial to Anwar Sheikh insofar as I feel like he has probably done the most out of anyone, any serious Marxist to like actually explicate what is Marx's economic theory you know, across the board, you know, in, in so many different facets. Um, and it would be, I think, really helpful to have someone basically try to do the same kind of um, excavation of, of the mature work to, in order to figure out, well, what is his, what is his understanding of, his, of history, of historical change, um, based not just like on, the, on a preface to an earlier work that was scrapped ultimately, but to, you know, the actual, what is he put into uh, the volumes of capital. Um, and, uh, and again, it's difficult because volumes two and three are fragmentary. Um, you know, there it's, you know, to do this, you, you're going through close to 3000 pages worth of material. Um, you know, there's all these, there's all these difficulties, but, um, to actually try to understand, well, what, how does he understand the, you know, like what, what is a precondition to capitalism that it's kind of this, um, you know, this looming aspect of the book where uh, he's saying we're in capitalism. Well, what actually, wh when does capitalism start and, and what what is it versus what is it not? And, and so he, he adds these historical chapters in order to try to explain, you know, uh, you've had merchant capital for thousands of years. You've had, uh, you know, users, pe people who lend money um, and get interest payments, basically. Uh, and these are substratums of society that are uh, interested in making a profit that have existed for a long time. And yet you don't have capitalism for thousands of years. Um, so the actual distinction between uh, a strata within society's um, buying in order to sell versus an entire social system that is organized around uh, that principle. Um, yeah. I mean, he also does say a lot just in volume one that's um where he's like very explicit that like uh at least being a capitalist in his understanding uh requires um 
requires living off of of wage labor, right? I mean, this this is this is something he's like super duper explicit about, right? That you uh, uh, that uh, that somebody who's like even like a an owner of a of a you know like a a business owner who you know who's who's not um, uh, you know who's who's not consumed full time with you know with uh, with extracted uh, you know with 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 uh, you know, at least like managerial or business tasks, you know, that they mm. uh, isn't, uh, isn't a capitalist yet, right? They're like still some sort of like weird intermediate form. Right. I mean, it's, it's part of, you know, part of the division of the books, of course, is that in volume one, there is no distinction between capitals or capitalists, that it is just capital, cap, like that it's all of it's basically a, you know this abstraction of the social relation of there's capital and labor and that's that's what we're talking about here and then volume 3 has to it deals with well actually obviously there are many different kinds of capitalists and different capitals and they're in competition or they're bargaining with each other but ultimately you can still say even if they're not directly exploiting the wealth of society basically by and large is still coming off the backs of uh, surplus value that's extracted from workers, even even profit that um, is not directly coming out of uh, surplus value, like um, like fictitious capital, etc. It lives on top of the foundation of surplus value extraction, etc. Um, but again, so like once you get to and you know, volume three is kind of the the most concrete he gets in the analysis, and it's still extremely abstract. It's not he's not describing a society; he's describing like these very kind of like uh, very abstract uh, social formations. Um, but it's either, you know, he has to, of course, say, well, why is this a new thing versus not a new thing? Why is this, why has the, you know, the process of lending money changed over time and you can't, you know, um, or even money itself has changed over time. That money doesn't serve the same social function in capitalism that it does in previous societies, et cetera. Um, and, you know, again, I feel like there's very few people who've really kind of taken the time to try to understand, you know, like the, the full, the full theory, I guess, that Marx is putting forward. Um, there's very few, like Roman Rosdolsky has done some important work, like many, many decades ago. Um, but like very few people have kind of uh, done similar kind of work like that. Um I don't know. I'm I'm kind of trailing off. It was just a fun thought I wanted to share. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, well, <laughs> I would uh, I would read it. So, uh, you know, I I hope uh, I hope somebody uh, hopes. Well, I hope somebody is already in the middle of writing it. Because uh, if not, you know, then then uh, then it's it's going to be you know very 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 long time until uh, until yeah. uh, we get to read it. But. Uh, in any case, I, uh, I appreciate, uh, appreciate the call. That's fun. Uh, and I'm going to knock off for tonight. Going to be back tomorrow on uh, the main show on YouTube to talk to Matt Brunig about socialism. Should be fun. We'll see people then. Left is best.